Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. It has been remarked that sometimes the people who seem to focus the most on hell after life seem to be the least concerned with hell on earth. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, if you've known a Christian or seen a Christian community that seems very much focused on the afterlife, what might happen to someone after they die, which, which place they're going to go, the good place or the bad place. And yet, instead of so focusing on these afterlife destinations, they can sometimes turn a blind eye to the reality of the world as it is right now. And they can sometimes fail to hear or repeat Jesus' prayer in the sermon, or in his prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, that the kingdom of God may come on earth, as is in heaven. This was a week where we, if you were paying attention, and it was hard not to for most of us, where we saw some, some hell-like realities on earth. This was a week where, just in, in our nation, right, we had multiple mass shootings. Many of us are grieving over that, and frustrated and annoyed and confused and hurt and scared. It was a week where uh, I received an email from a former student, and this student is just struggling with life. Most of us have been there, various different things, struggling with life, and students kind of come to this existential question, like, why do I still go? Why am I still doing this? And he emailed me real pointedly, just ask, hey, what happens to someone who decides they don't want to still go? Someone they, they don't want to just to keep on going in this life. What, what, just give me the straight truth. What would happen? Is there an afterlife destination? Is there a space that was created just for people like me who may make a choice that might not be the right one? We're in a sermon series on hell right now. And what we've been doing is, is really just addressing the question that most, many of you have posed to me over the, the, the summer as we've explored some more difficult kind of Christian issues and looked at some different ways of viewing and thinking and living out Christianity um, and one of the things we got a whole lot was, well, what about hell? What about hell? What about hell? And so we are exploring the issue of hell. And we're exploring it like we do all things at Sweetwater Christian Church with an open mind and with open Bibles and with a commitment to thinking deeply, a commitment to um, thinking together, to hearing questions, hearing alternative positions, um, and a commitment to, above all, worshiping and bearing witness to the God who has revealed himself in Christ. And so um, two weeks ago, we started this series, very complex, sometimes confusing concept. And so it's going to be an equally complex, maybe confusing series. And, and we laid a foundation for the different, the big different tents in Christianity when it comes to how people view hell. You might think, growing up in whatever situation you grew up in, that there's only one way Christians view hell. There's one belief about hell, but that's really not the case. There's a, a, a large, diverse um, array of different ways that Christians have understood and viewed hell, that they've preached on it, they've taught on it. There are three big main camps, and so we, we just kind of laid a foundation and said, look, as your pastor, I'm not going to tell you which camp you're supposed to be in, and the church for sure doesn't have one of these three camps as a tent. And if you've been at the church for a while, that's not something that's kind of new to you. We're going to think about all of these. We're going to explore these. We're going to see which fits the data best, which answers the questions most satisfactory. And at the end of the day, we're probably still going to have disagreements. And that's okay. That's good. That's probably healthy. Last week, we looked at Jesus and the Gospels. 
if we can hear from Jesus about an issue, that's usually the best person to go to. And Jesus has a lot of teaching on hell. He uses the word Gehenna. And so we did a deep dive into Gehenna last week to kind of explore what Jesus might have meant by Gehenna, by hell, his teachings on hell. And one of the things that I tried to express last week was that Jesus was just concerned with Gehenna-like, hell-like realities on earth as he is with anything that might be coming in the future. And so I thought to myself, okay, how are we going to finish out this series? We've got two more weeks here. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of texts. I can't possibly just go through every possible text that you might have a question on and, and try to argue this point or another point. Um, it, it just, it's not going to work that way. We just don't have the time for that. That'd be maybe something better for some deep dive reading if you want to do some individual research or maybe for like a classroom setting if you're doing like a teaching type thing. And I thought what, what might be helpful is to take a text, a difficult text, and uh, to walk through it with each three of these hats on and all three of these tents. See how these different Christians would have read it. And in so doing, I hope that two things will happen. One, we'll be given some humility. A humble and contrite heart is what the Lord asks of us, what he requires of us. I think that's true even when it comes to reading the scriptures. And then two, it might open up our eyes into ways of how people and Christians have and do view this concept. That might enlarge our understanding, enlarge our capacity to engage and dialogue and, and understand um, that which the scriptures are teaching us. So I want to do a case study with you, a text, if you will, and, and look through how different Christians might view, might interpret this text. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians is where we're going to be. Now, I'm a glutton for punishment, and so I thought, what's one of the most difficult texts I could possibly pick? In particular, what's one of the most difficult texts I could pick in light of where I personally would naturally lean on this issue? What would be more difficult for me personally? Because I've taught in the classroom, and, and a lot of times the students will thanks for listing out the three possibilities, but we want a shortcut. Which one do you believe in, right? And it's like, one, I want to shortcut the thinking. Two, I just kind of want to regurgitate what, what, you're, what you're getting at. I don't want to do that, not in the classroom and, and not here. But I definitely do lean more towards one or two than uh, another one or two. And so I picked a text that personally for me was going to be a little bit more difficult um, and I think turns out to be a, a really good case study for us. So it comes from the book of Second Thessalonians. We're going to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 5. We're reading out of the ESV. Most of us, if you picked up a Bible from me at the chair, that's the English Standard Version as well. Chapter 1, verse 5 in 2 Thessalonians. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus 
Christ. Now, for many people, for myself, for most of my life growing up, I would have read this passage and go, what is there to question? I mean, what's there to talk about? What's there to debate about here? This seems pretty cut and dry here. Jesus is going to show back up one day with his mighty angels in flaming fire. The imagery is intense. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. It's like, I don't know, people who listen to rap music. Um, <clears throat> I don't know why, when I was a kid, that was mainly who was going to hell. And maybe I just took that. Maybe that's not exactly what they taught because I listened to some rap music. Don't tell my parents. But that was kind of my big takeaway as a kid was like, okay, rap will send you there. Um, <clears throat> so I went to seminary and got into metal. Um, Punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, the glory of his might. He seems pretty cut and dry. But depending on what type of Christian you talk to, it might not be so cut and dry. They might ask certain questions of this text. They might ask certain questions that maybe really make you think, and some other questions you might think that might be reaching just a little bit. And yet, maybe even then, it would be provocative. It would help you think through some other issues. So we had three big camps the first camp are the traditionalists. This is what I think many of us were taught about hell growing up if you grew up in a kind of evangelical Christian world. You might call this the infernalist view um, or the eternal conscious torment view. This is the idea that hell is a place or a space, an experience for those who don't believe in Christ where they are punished and experience bad things for all of time, unending. Eternal, conscious, they're awake for it, and then torment. This is your classic, like, Dante's Inferno. Most of medieval and on, modern Christian thought about hell and, and, and even in pop culture kind of builds off of this tradition. So much so that when we go back to the text, we often read into them the traditions that we were brought up into. And so a traditionalist would look at this text and go, well, I see fire, I see eternal punishment, destruction, vengeance. Seems about right. This is what's coming for those who are, in this context, persecuting Christians. It's talking about people who are afflicting the, the, the faithful followers of Christ in Thessalonica. But there's a second camp. They might call themselves the annihilationists or the conditional immortality. They, they, they say, Whatever this punishment might be, this, this coming final judgment, it's not forever. And there's a couple reasons they would say this. The first is they say, what kind of justice is this? Where a human being, with whatever degree of evil they might commit in their life, is then subject to an eternal amount of torture at the hands of an infinite, powerful God. They say, look, there's not a judge or a courtroom you can find on earth that's going to look at that and be like, that is justice. That seems right. That seems fair. So we got, we got questions even here about justice. Like we got questions about God's nature too. What type of a God does this sort of thing? Is capable of this sort of thing? What, what type of people is capable of being okay with a God who's capable of this sort of thing? This is one of the things that gets overlooked is the, the toll on a human psyche that the traditional view of hell takes. It really is a heavy load for a human being to bear. That does not mean it's wrong. It's just to point out that for many people who believe this, 
they either find ways to cope, ignore it, rationalize it in certain, certain areas, or you can feel this weight been on top of them. I have, I have friends in my life who, who believe this, and, and they have loved ones in their lives who are not believers, and, and since they think this is what's coming for them, I mean, the worst possible outcome that you could possibly imagine with no end in sight, quantity and quality, just the worst. You can rightly imagine that, I mean, they're kind of disabled in everyday life. This overtakes their thoughts and their prayers. And if they're right, it should. It's intense. But you have some annihilationists. They're going to say, maybe when we pay more attention to the text itself, we realize we're reading things into the text that aren't necessarily there. So they're going to say, instead of this unending conscious torment, whatever final judgment is, it's something that has an end. The basis of it, they're going to say, is God getting rid of, from his creation, all evil, including all evildoers. And so whatever that involves, however that looks, whatever that entails, it doesn't entail like a torture chamber that never turns off. Even they'll say, look at the imagery. They'll say there's very few passages, and, and this is true, they have a point here, there's very few passages in the Scripture which actually suggest people are still conscious in this punishment. There's like one or two. I mean, it's, it's really just not, it's not there in the text. We, we like to imagine it's there all throughout the text. Instead, you get a diverse group of images. And even when you take these metaphorical images, literally, they don't suggest that someone sustains, is sustained in this kind of state of psychological torture. I mean, you throw someone in flames and it might hurt for a little bit, but eventually they're out, right? I mean, eventually they pass. They cease being. And so they're going to look at this text and they're going to say, notice there's not much here about like, so the language just on the surface level, right, is what? Destruction. The punishment is destruction. They'll say, if you look throughout the scriptures, this is the theme throughout. The, the punishment, the wages for sin is, is death. So much of the, the text about judgment and punishment, they just talk about perishing, being destroyed, being done away with. We don't have to try to imagine these psychological horror shows. It's just one day God will make a stand and will say, all that's bad in my creation, it's out of here. It's gone. It no longer exists. It's all annihilated. Or they'll say this, immortality, the ability to keep living, is a gift from God. For you to cease existing, it's not even God to actively do something to you. It's for him just to simply take away that gift. Say, okay, if you, if you choose this way, if this path is pursued, it ends in destruction. The gift of existence is not something that is perpetually given over and over and over and over again. Now, what about the word eternal? You see it here in this passage. The punishment is eternal destruction. This is throughout a lot of the, the punishment, hell, judgment texts. Eternal fire, eternal flames, eternal torment. Well, they'll say, you don't have to read this the way that we as traditionalists, I as a traditionalist was taught to read this. Eternal can refer to a process in terms of an event, but it can also refer to the effect of an action. So this is what they'll say. This is how they interpret eternal here and almost everywhere in the scriptures that say eternal destruction you can read this, and you're not playing games here, right? I mean, you're not trying to get cute with the text. This is serious reading. To read eternal destruction as being destruction that what? Lasts for eternity. It's never like undid, undone. The effect of the punishment is eternal. Not the process of punishing. Does that make sense? That's how they, they'd read a text like this. 
They say, look, I mean, really, if you go back and look at all of these texts, you're going to find language that points out to, to this. And then you've got a third camp, and it's this third camp that has the hardest time with a text like this. In fact, I think this might be one of the hardest ones. These are Christian universalists. And a Christian universalist says they at least have a hope. They're often not assertive about it. They just say, we hope that one day all humans will be reconciled to God. And they believe this because of what they believe about God's love, because of the narrative they see in Scripture, because of the power of Jesus' victory. But then they have texts like this in the Scripture. And it's pretty hard to square this circle with that square. How is everyone going to get to reconciliation if this is happening? I mean, this, this is right here. This is right in front of us. And so there's a couple ways that Christian universalists can attack this, can approach this. The first thing they can do is they can ignore passages that don't talk about, that talk about hell and final judgment. And this is not, you might be surprised, not surprised to hear this from me, a great strategy. But this is something that many Christians do all the time, right? I mean, we all have beliefs, and there are things in the Bible that don't necessarily line up with that belief, and we don't have a good answer for it, right? We just kind of go, well, we prefer this. This seems a little bit heavier to us, more obvious. There's more of these than that. And so we just kind of, in whatever way we can rationalize it, right, we just don't deal with it that much. Another way, I think this is, if you're going to be a Christian universalist, this is the best probably approach, is to imagine judgment, hell, whatever this is, as a terrible but temporary fate. It's chronological to an eventual reconciliation to God. Now again, you might go, okay, even that, I'm looking at this text, and I'm waiting for you to do something really creative here, because it seems like a, a slam dunk here. And it is probably the slammiest of all dunks. It's up there in the top three, at least, in terms of Scripture, if you want to hold out some kind of hope for everybody. I think, for most of us, this is the hardest view to really understand. This is the one that's going to push us a little bit more. This is the one that's going to make us feel a little uncomfortable. Like, if our parents knew I was listening to a sermon like this right now, they might be a little disappointed in me. So let's do it. How would a Christian universalist look at this text and possibly come away with the idea that something other than eternal final judgment, however, whatever shape or form it takes, is going to be what, what happens to those who oppose the gospel of Jesus. Well, let's do some, some exegetical work, some text work. Zoom in on verse 9 for me. They'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Two things I want to note to you first. You, you might see a little note after that word from, away from the presence of the Lord. In my ESV, there's a two there. If you go down, it'll tell me there's a different way to translate this. This is a translation issue here. So the ESV says the punishment of eternal destruction happens away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord has he's revealed now in fiery flames with his mighty angels and mighty glory. A lot of our English translations carry this sense. The RSV, they'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence. The NRSV, eternal destruction separated from the presence. The NIV, everlasting destruction shut out from the presence of the Lord. This seems to be an even stronger case against the idea that maybe there's something after this. Not only are they being eternally destroyed, but they're away from, they're cast out, they're excluded from the presence of God. Even if they were to try to cross a bridge later or repent later, God's not even there to hear it. They have been separated from his presence. This is why traditionalists themselves will even argue about whether hell is 
what it is because God's there or because God's not there? Is hell a separation from God? Existence apart from God? Or is hell like the punishment of God being there despite the choices you've made, despite the things that you've believed? Well, I think the, the way our English translations have done us is wrong. Um, in the Greek, there's really nothing there that, that has that connotation of away or exclusion or shut off from. The Greek word that's there is just simply from. It can be translated in two ways. It can be translated this way. Eternal punishment, or punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. It could be away from, but it could also be causal, right? I mean, it could be the destruction is because of, it's coming from the presence of the Lord. I think that's the most natural way to read the text. Usually when you have questions like this in translation, context makes a difference. The context is of what? Jesus' mighty glory. Whatever you're going to experience, even if it's negative because of that mighty glory, it's not going to be because you're far away from it. It's going to be because it's right there. It's powerful and it's acting itself right upon you. Even for someone who's a traditionalist, who is an infernalist, who, who believes this traditional view of hell, I would say, you can sharpen up your theology by making sure that you don't take this one verse, it's the only verse you have in the scripture that suggests that anything exists apart from the presence of God, and refining it. Even Christian universalists will sometimes say, we're only hopeful about this because we're realists about human freedom. And even if there are chances for people to be reconciled after death, we know enough about humans that maybe humans will say no just forever. They'll just keep saying no. What will that experience be like? Well, one Eastern Orthodox theologian explains it this way. He says, if, if every human being's eternal fate, if their destiny is to behold the glory of God and, and all of his love, then your experience of that beholding is going to vary based on who you are. If your whole life you have longed to see and experience God's love, and when you come to that moment where you are beholding it, it will be for you ultimate bliss, ultimate fulfillment. But if you have longed for the opposite, if your deepest desires are for the opposite, if you said to evil, you are my good, you are my God, then to behold that would be then for you ultimate frustration perhaps even ultimate torment. Eternal damnation then would be maybe experienced as something like eternal regret, to see God's love and be unable or unwilling to accept it or reciprocate it. As, as one Eastern Orthodox theologian put it, what is punishment except that which we desire being withheld from us? I mean, what is, what is punishment except that which we want the deepest us being unable to attain that. So whatever's happening here, it seems to be happening in conjunction with Jesus and, and something Jesus is doing, an interaction with God, an experience of God. Not a separate side of God, of God. God there's only one God, the God of love. And even though he's a fire, even though he consumes, this punishment comes at his hands. It's something that's experienced by him. Now the nature of this punishment, eternal destruction, They'd say there's, there's two things you can do here. The word eternal can be translated in, in time quality or just in like quantitativeness, like the effect of this action. But it can also be translated as ages, the age to come. So when, when people ask Jesus in the Gospels, how do I inherit eternal life? Notice he doesn't say something about after they die, where they might 
go where they might experience. He says, here's what you do right now, and you'll experience eternal life. It could be translated, life of the age to come. This is how we often translate it in texts that aren't in the Bible. Same words, life of the age to come. So you might say the eternal punishment or eternal fire, eternal destruction is also the punishment, the fire, the, the destruction of the age to come. It is a description about something that will happen that's not yet happened. It's not trying to give you the nitty-gritty details, the speculative details of what exactly it will be like. And then this word destruction, the Christian universe is like, granted, this is difficult, but is there a world in which destruction is not destruction? <laughs> For Paul, there is. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the only other time the New Testament uses this same word for destruction, it's referring to a believer who has been having relationships with his stepmother. It's a weird passage for about a weird dude at a weird church with weird advice. So Paul says, kick him out of the church that Satan may destroy him so that he may be saved. The destruction intended for this man is one that actually is intended for his ultimate good. Now, does that prove anything about this passage? No. Are those two separate passages talking about two separate things? Yes. But could it at least perhaps illustrate to us that there are imaginations larger than ours and, and ways of using words that are larger than ours that could allow other texts to breathe and, and to wiggle and to speak truth and life into other places? Perhaps. I mean, in Romans, Paul says that the Jewish people have been consigned to disobedience, but it's just for a time period. After the Gentiles have been grafted in, they will be brought back in. All will be brought into obedience. All will be reconciled in the end of Romans 11 there. It is the case in Scripture that oftentimes God's judgment and mercy aren't two separate things, but God's judgment is often used in the process of getting someone to God's mercy. Perhaps what's being experienced is something akin to the realization of, of what your sin has done, what your sin does do. Your eyes being opened up to the consequences. And this is something that, that isn't meant to trap you, but it's something that perhaps is a launching pad to your freedom. Now, the real question for Christian Universalists who, by the way, if you were to really get into a conversation about this text, they would say, this is a difficult text. But they would say, here's the thing. Let's always remember. The question is not, what view do you have that has no difficult text? Every one of these three tents has difficult text, right? If you're a traditionalist, there are plenty of texts that are going to be hard for you to explain. If you're an annihilationist, there are plenty of texts that are hard for you to explain. If you're a universalist, there are plenty of texts that are going to be hard for you to explain. So say, you're not just after the Holy Grail here where the whole Bible seems 100% clear on your one idea. The big issue, though, for many people is uh, what we call posthumous repentance, post-mortem repentance. How might it be that people who die as non-believers end up being able to be reconciled to God? How might they come into this kind of post-death experience? Now, it is, for many of us, kind of a truism that death is the final chance we have of making a choice of responding to the invitation of Christ, of offering up any sort of repentance that will lead us into union with Christ. The question that I want to ask this morning is, why is that? Why do we believe that and believe that so strongly? 
when I grew up, this was like a truism, right? It was as if there was a Bible verse that said, nope, you die, that's it. A, a Christian university is going to say, we have scriptures indicating to us that God wants everyone to repent. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What is it about the act of dying that changes God's nature towards you so fundamentally? We're up to that point, patience, slowness, a deep desire for you to repent, come to salvation, and then flatlines, different ballgame. Now you're dealing with a different, different thing. Well, there is a Bible verse that has caused evangelicals to believe this, traditionalists to believe this. It comes from the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 27. It basically says something to this effect. Every human being has the same destiny waiting for them. They're all going to die, and then they'll face judgment. That's more or less what it says. Now, you can read this and read that these are chronological boom-boom events. You die, and then you face judgment. There's no in-between. There's no wiggle room. But you don't have to read it that way. It could just be a very simple, this is what happens to everybody. You die and you face judgment. Is this the final judgment? Could this be like a preliminary judgment? Could there be space or room or action in between these two things? Most Christians, or many Christians throughout history, have actually believed that at least once there's been a chance for post-mortem repentance. When Christ goes down into Hades and these really difficult to interpret passages and preaches to these souls that were imprisoned after his resurrection, or after his death but before his resurrection— some of you don't even know what I'm talking about here. There's a phrase in the Apostles' Creed that says Jesus descended into hell, and we, kinda, again, kind of like skip over that. or go like, I know what that means, and just keep saying the creed. There's this Christian belief that, no, nah, in this in-between period, between the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus goes to this place where people are in prison, preaches them the gospel. So even if that's not it for everybody, at least one time in history it's happened. They say, what if it's not the case that death fundamentally changes things? in terms of God's desire towards us, God's willingness to accept repentance, God's patience towards us? What if it's the case that there is a chance for a post-mortem, posthumous repentance here? If you study Christian history, if you go back and look through the archives of our faith, what you'll find is that Christians really didn't believe this about death being the end chance of you repenting until about the 4th century. If you know a lot about Christian history, you know a lot of things changed in the 4th century. A lot of beliefs started to shift. A lot of beliefs started to be cemented, particularly in the Western part of the church. Before that, there was a lot of openness to what may or may not happen. And there's also a question, when you study Christianity or really anything, right, what's more indicative of what people really believe, the elites or the people? So, is it what's in the textbooks or what the pastors or theologians are writing? Or is it what the people are seeing in church? What the prayers they're offering are? What the popular level books are? And what really tells you about what they believe more? Is it Pastor Mike's blog that's all in Greek and another made-up language from Lord of the Rings? Or is it like the sermon transcript? The normal people? Well, if you go back into early Christian history, what you'll find is from the very beginning, Christians had a very widespread practice, almost universal practice, of praying for the dead. Praying that people who had died might repent. Believers and non-believers. Now this was never formulated into some equation. 
where they felt like we understood exactly how everything works. It was just a presumption they had that God is a big God, God is a loving God, and hope is much bigger than we'd like to parcel it. Now, what seems to have happened in history is we've made a similar presumption just on the other side. We've said instead of presuming hope, let's presume judgment. We'll just presume, nope, it's done, it's fixed. And this practice has gone out of practice. You've probably not heard a Christian pray for the dead recently. Why? Well, because we think it's over. That death, it's over. Whatever you were doing, it's fixed. It's like a habit that's turned into like second nature now. It can't possibly be different. Now, the question you get if you suggest maybe something happens after an experience, however negative it might be, where people have the ability or option to repent, is this. Then what's the point of this? What's the point of right now? What's the point of our lives? This is all a joke. And the Christian universalists respond with a, a few things. That for, they go, first, we, we need to develop a theology of the now, where you would choose to be Christian now even if hell was not a threat for you. The question is really just a truncated version of why not wait till you die or till you're on your deathbed to become a Christian? And if the best answer you have for that is because, well, you can't always call it that close, we probably need to go back to the lab and think of a better answer. There needs to be something about the way we view the world and how beautiful God is now that would mean we would choose him now, even if there wasn't a deadline. And we wouldn't get mad if, if someone chose him at the end of the deadline and they got in. I think Jesus tells a parable about this. So if this is the case in our lives, which can be fairly long, just from our experience of time, why then do we draw this hard line and act like, no, this is outside of the logic of God himself, that there's something that exists after death where these decisions can be made? What is it about God and Christianity that we would choose now? Why believe now? Well, um, <clears throat> I'd humbly suggest we could ask people in Odessa, Texas, today. We could ask people in Alabama today. And they could say there are consequences for how people live and believe. Why choose now? Because Jesus prayed that now God's kingdom would be manifest on earth as it is in heaven. And because when we don't pray those prayers and live that life, it has real life consequences. People really hurt. There are really situations that we should weep for like Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Why believe now? Because I, I have a, a subscription to the news. Because I have friends and family. That's why I believe now. That's why we practice now. And because God is beautiful and glorious, and I want as much of that as possible. You might also develop a, an idea you might call like the chance to miss an unrepeatable opportunity. It does seem as if in life, whether it's for your personal character development, for your career, even for religious choices, there are some opportunities that don't come around again. You get one chance at it. Now, it doesn't mean that there's never a chance in the future to somehow correct it. It just means you've missed out on something that you otherwise could have had. Whatever path you have to take now, it's going to be a bumpier path, a harder path. It's going to be delayed. It's going to involve more pain. What if, what if it's the case that the repentance is kind of like trying to exit at the right place on the highway? I don't know if your GPS does this. Mine does this. It likes to tell me the exit I'm supposed to be taking late enough that I, there's no chance for me to get on that exit. But in time enough for me to see the exit with my eyes, just to feel existentially the pain of missing, missing the route. 
And so I'm on my way to a, a wedding. There's a reason I want to be at the wedding. It's beautiful. I don't want to miss out. There's something to be enjoyed there. And I miss that exit, and I'm going to be late. Or I get into an accident at another accident that I shouldn't have even been at in the first place. There was an opportunity I missed. It's unrepeatable. But that doesn't mean, right, that I can't, through a bumpy, painful, or delayed route, end up back at the wedding. And maybe I experienced something that I otherwise wouldn't have experienced or wouldn't have wanted to experience, but, but there was still some way to U-turn and reroute eventually. No, there can be urgency to the now and still have this view of hope and humility in terms of the future. And lastly, I think Christian Universalists would say context matters. So we talked about this when we talked about Jesus and his warnings on hell. Why is he saying this, right? Well, because he's upset about something. He wants people to make different decisions in the immediate, in the future. Jesus is not making predictions and like reveling in his guarantees of people's eternal fate. He's like, no, your decisions matter now. I need you to change things. What's the context of this passage? It's Christians who are being persecuted And it's the truth that one day God is going to redeem things. He's going to make right all wrongs. And if you've ever forgiven someone or had yourself forgiven, you've experienced this. When you reconcile, it causes pain. It hurts to forgive. It hurts to be forgiven. You have to own up to the things that you have done. One day, everything that's wrong with the world will be made right. And for people who have been on top, this is going to involve a being on bottom. And for people on the bottom, this is going to involve a, a reversing where they are now on top. And the higher you were, the harder that fall is going to feel. The context here is of like giving hope and urging Christians to endure through their suffering. It would make no sense, even if Paul, who wrote this letter, did believe that even these people might have a chance of repentance later on, it would make no sense to put that here. P.S. They might be into. Right? I mean, it takes away from the whole like, rhetorical point of this passage. Context matters. Like the, the, the email I got from this student who has come to the, what they feel like is the end of the road for them. It was rambly and windy. Kid I love. And a lot of you have experienced something like this. If you're a teacher, you've certainly dealt with situations like this before. Ask this question, what will happen if I make this choice? And I, I think I know it's the wrong one, but I'm not sure if I'm strong enough not to make it. What would happen to me? My answer to him is going to be different than my answer to a parent whose child has already made that choice. Does that make sense? Context matters. They might even sound like different answers. But they don't necessarily have to be different. To the child in front of me wondering if he's strong enough to keep going, guess what I'm going to focus on? Now, urgency, the magnitude of your decisions, the consequences of your decisions, what really is possible in the here and now. You think you've reached rock bottom? Why should you keep going? Because you've reached rock bottom. What what, what else is in the future? You might as well wake up and see. You, You think you can't keep going through this? You can always reserve the right to make that call tomorrow. Go to sleep. You can always make that decision in a future day. But life has a weird way of changing. You can't imagine it? That's the point. We can never imagine how life changes like this. So just go. 
If you've got to close your eyes and take a step, close your eyes and take a step. Just keep going. What do you need? Need someone to, to talk to? Let's talk. Need someone to pray with you? Let's, let's pray. Need someone to help you out with this or that? We'll find you help for this or that. Let's just keep going. But to a parent whose child's faced this decision and <clears throat> perhaps made a tragic decision, the answer is going to be a lot different. The answer is going to be less focused on the here and now, the urgency of making decisions. It's going to be more focused on who God is, what he's like, whether we can truly trust him or not. It's going to sound something like, as hard as it is for us to understand, God loves us more than we love ourselves. He loves our children more than we can love our children. God is more able to see the good for them, and he desires it more than we do. Can we trust him? Do you know exactly how it all works out? No, 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 no. No one's claiming to. But might we trust him? Is Jesus, as he's revealed in the Gospels, is he the exact revelation of what God's like? Or is there another God hiding behind him? About to pop out, maybe upon death or, or some other event. Or is it really the God revealed in Christ in the Gospels, the God who is gentle towards those on the outside, towards those trapped in cycles of oppression and hurt and self-destruction? Is it, is it the Christ who picks up the woman caught in adultery and doesn't condemn her? Is that the God we're trusting? And can we say at the end of the day, regardless of exactly what we know, we, we can rest in trusting him? Is it enough for us to say, even if I don't know, it's good enough for him to know? The him matters, right? Now, if it's a scary hidden God, I'm not so sure. But if it's the God revealed in Christ Jesus of Nazareth, then I'll say, yeah, let's roll the dice. I trust his mercy. I trust his judgment. I trust his ability to find the lost sheep and bring them in. I trust the way he draws the boundaries. I trust him when he says, there are sheep that you don't know of. They're not in this pen. He says, there's lots of rooms. You might not be aware of all of them. And at the end of Revelation, he says, through the Spirit, all who are thirsty keep coming in, even though apparently all who weren't drinking from the fountain of water have already been thrown into the lake of fire. Yet this invitation goes out. If you're thirsty, come. Gates open. Context matters. You don't have to give up urgency to also hold on to hope, to also have your imagination enlarged. And I'll close this morning by giving you one example of this, which is the table. Our worship services at Sweetwater Christian Church are organized around the table. We, we come to worship, and the climax of our worship, it's all embodied in the table, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper. And I never really thought of this until this week, but you know what I've never said, like inviting people to the table? If you don't want to come this week, they'll still be here next week. You need to think about it for a little bit. You need to weigh your options. Don't worry, it's not going anywhere. Now, I believe that every week. I believe that today. I believe that at the table, part of its symbolism is there's places for others. Part of our work this week should be finding those others, inviting them to the table in hopes that they'll join us. But that has never taken away 
for me the urgency of now, the beauty of now, the invitation right now. Come to the table. It's not even worth talking about the future at this point. Why would you not come to the table right now when, when, when Christ is inviting you, when his body and blood are on offer for you, when you can come meet and worship the crucified and risen one? Now, in a different context, if, if you were to leave having not come to the table and email me on Monday, being like, did I lose my chance? I'd be like, no, 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 it'll, it'll be there next Sunday. There's, there's room in the future. Or, you know, depending on the circumstances, I might even go, where are you? I can, I can bring it to you. The context will change the discussion a little bit. But you can have the hope. You can have the beauty of the future, what might be possible, how God might break down whatever barriers or boundaries we can't possibly work our way out of mentally, while also appreciating and striving for and grasping the urgency of the now, the beauty of the now, the call now to repent, to find life, to worship the one who has given his life for us. So at the table, as we worship this morning, this is what we'll do. Who knows what tomorrow brings? I know that no matter what tomorrow brings, there's still hope. Christ's victory on the cross through his resurrection is still strong and powerful. You're not bound to encounter anything tomorrow that's going to keep you away from the love of God in Christ. But that's not what we're focused on right now. Right now, we have a table in front of us. Right now, we have an invitation. We'll pray, and you'll be invited. I hope you join us.